Welcome to Built to Scale e-commerce show with Darius and Justin, your backstage pass to the eight and nine figure e-commerce world. Welcome to Built to Scale e-commerce show by Atkins Agency. And today we'll be interviewing Jason Wong, a managing partner at Wong House Ventures, where he has helped to build over a dozen of successful brands with modern, fast-to-market, fast-to-sell approach. And in this episode, we will be diving deep into how e-commerce businesses should approach sourcing products, due diligence, and the best pricing strategies from manufacturers. Sub Jason, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Darius? <laughs> Pretty good. So could you maybe quickly and briefly introduce yourself to members here? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Jason Wong, and I'm a product designer at heart, but entrepreneur in all kinds of places. Ever since I was young, I knew that I want to make stuff, but I never knew what that meant. And as I grew up, I just found love with making e-commerce products. The The reach and the experience I can provide through e-commerce commerce product was a match with anything else I wanted to do. So I went full send into e-commerce and here we are now. <laughs> okay. And how did you get into the e-commerce game? I mean, you started, I guess, at some other point and then you're just kind of naturally flowing into that. Yeah. When I was 12 years old, I was selling on eBay. I just learned <laughs> how to sell stuff on eBay and through my language in Chinese, I was able to source a lot of inventory from China, even at 12 years old, which is kind of mind-boggling now that I look back at it. But I was able to import inventory using my family's name and then sell them on eBay. And eventually, I was like, wow, you can actually sell a lot of stuff on the internet and ship them to people all over the world rather than just selling within your close proximity. So that opened up a lot of new opportunities for me there on. That's really cool to hear. And I know you know you from where you went to building like a few eight-figure e-commerce brands, right? So, you know, you mentioned also, you know, that you're sourcing and building up for products, right? So how would you go if you would need to do things right now from scratch about building the product? Whenever I build products, I think a lot about product market fit. That's usually what people look at when they think about is if a product is necessary. So don't really build products just because it seems like a good idea right now. Founders tend to have shiny object symptom, which is when they think of like a really good idea in the moment and they just go all in on it. And that's really detrimental to founders. I personally went through that a lot. So now whenever I go about making a new product, I really sit down and ask myself, is this really necessary? Is there a market for it? And how does it really differ from other things that are available on the market today? And once you start doing some self-reflection there, you actually might find a couple of things. One, someone else might have had the idea already and they may be able to be more equipped to do it better than you because they got a lot more funding. So it's probably better for you to not put that much thought into trying to fight against a venture-backed company. Uh, number two is people have tried the solution in the past and it's probably not a good market to test just because the market might be too small. So after I evaluate all these things, then I start looking at what are the possible vendors. And after I look at vendors, I take a look at margins. So first, it's if the product's right. And number two is if the product's profitable. If you have a really good product and the manufacturers across the entire spectrum is selling it for $5, but you know that the market price is $6, there's absolutely no margin for you to work with. And why do people get that market price? Is because they've been doing this for over 20, 30 years and they're able to buy it in large volume. So people like us, the small fishes, aren't able to get in this easy. So for products like that, 
all together. Let's look at it. So looking at products with good amount of profit margins, product market fit. Afterwards, I do some sort of a test online. So depending on what brand I'm working on, we have some sort of a focus group. So I go into focus group. I ask them a lot of questions on whether or not the product is feasible, whether or not they'll use it. And more than that, I will try to make digital rendering and toss it on the internet and see if there's any interest for it. That's really the beauty of the internet today is that you're able to test out your concepts a lot faster than, let's just say, five, 10 years ago when you actually have to make it to show people. Nowadays, you can just Photoshop anything and see like, hey, you know, (laughs) does this seem interesting to you? And you can get really rapid responses. Yeah, and this is interesting, you know, right now we are kind of on the process of developing our own e-commerce businesses and it's a very similar approach to what we are doing. We are literally like rendering the products, right? And creating landing pages, running some ads and just checking the demand. And that's it. We will know the ones that we're selling by the time that we are finished. And it will help us to save at least like five, six hours in creating a product that the market does not need. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of the big error that I see a lot of merchants make is that they go with the old school way. There are definitely processes to do things and things that have been tried and true. 10, 20 years ago, you make you make samples, you buy inventory, and you sell it. Like you look and people come by and you're like, okay, maybe it's a good product, maybe it's a bad product. But that entire process takes months. Now, whenever we want to test new concepts, we make digital renderings, we make landing pages, we run ads to it. We see what's the metrics, how many people click through it, how many people actually check out. And all that metrics can be collected and validated in maybe a week or two weeks or maybe a couple thousand dollars in ad spend. So instead of you investing all your money into buying inventory, R&D, and then the product flops. Yeah. We can now actually try and inch a lot more products at a faster interval, just so much faster than anything else you can see before. So that's really our process is trying to test as much as we can without investing that much money into inventory unless it's absolutely necessary. That's smart. And what do you do, you know, after you figure out which uh, products you should be manufacturing? How do you go about building the prototype or do you just source something similar? We do two things, depending on what kind of product it is. There are some products that are existing that you really just need to tweak it a little bit. There are things that you have to make it from scratch. In the past, I've built multiple brands that you have to build from scratch. So it's not like you can just get a sample of an existing product. So those, typically, we will have to give the manufacturer full design and all the renderings and mock-ups, every single specification down to the T to make a small batch of the actual product. There are also some products that are existing, like let's just say a thermal water bottle, maybe yeah. a pair of eyelashes. And these things are already existing. So you really just got to go see if the material is right, if the color is right, if the rubber strap handle for the bottle is correct. And then once you approve these components, like parts of a product, then you can Frankenstein it together into the final product. So you don't have to make the small batches of the actual product. That might save you a lot of money and time in that process, but that's usually how I do it. Okay, so you just basically do a test order, right? With kind of like manufacturing round one, you just evaluate product quality and then you decide, you know, which improvements needs to be then, right? Implemented. Yeah, yeah. Um, When you look at products, you look at it like it's components. Like every single product is made up of different components. For example, this water bottle is made up of a cap, the paper label and the actual plastic in case yeah. itself. So if I were to make another water bottle, I would buy five different water bottles and I'm like, yeah, I want this cap, I want this label, and I want this plastic casing. 
And just by doing that over and over again, I'm applying the same principle to other products like shoes. Every single pair of shoes has shoelaces, soles, the insoles, whatever. Start thinking about product as if it's broken down. And that's really how yeah. you think about customizing your product. That's actually smart. How do you go about finding these suppliers and places to build the products with? Do you already have some sort of network? No, I never have a network whenever I build new products, which is the <laughs> unfortunate thing. But the thing about manufacturing in China is that there's so, so many manufacturers in China. There's maybe hundreds of thousands of different manufacturers for different things in China. And the way that you look at manufacturing in Asia, and actually like most other countries specifically, is that manufacturing plants for specific categories are within the same region. So let's just say north of China is well known for making hair products. So wigs, eyelashes, whatever is made there. Maybe the east of China is known for doing textiles. So any t-shirts, pants, shoes are done there. South of China is known for electronics. So computer chips, cameras, yada, yada is made there. So First things first, when I validate suppliers, is I look at their region. Like, are they situated in a region where it's known to make that component? Because if not, then it means that the raw material cost is going to be more expensive. If you're in the East China side where it's known to make textile, but you're having an electronic managing plant, it means that you have to source the material from the South of China and making it more expensive. It also means that you're not experienced and not a seasoned manufacturer in that category, because if you were, you would be in that region. So like, first of all, just really narrowing it down from the people that aren't even worth pursuing, because you, yeah. you know there's a lot to choose. The more that you can to not choose, the better. Next, I look at their history, their trading history on Alibaba. If you're looking for vendors on Alibaba, there's typically a lot of qualifications that you can select and narrow down, such as have they been vetted by a third-party audit company? You can see that as a badge. How many years have they been a supplier for? Anything above three, four years, it's a minimum, but preferably to 10 years. You also look at the trade volume. How many units have they sold in the past 30 days, in the past 365 days? If they're selling a lot larger volume, it means that your pricing might be lower just because the economies of scale. Yeah. If someone's selling a million units of headphones, they're probably going to get you your 2,000 units of headphones around the same price or a lot cheaper than someone who's only sold 500,000 pairs of headphones. So there's a lot of things that you look at when you look at picking suppliers, but that's really just like the surface level of it. Okay. I know a lot of people are concerned when we're going to China about being scammed by a supplier. And this kind of happens quite a lot. Is there like any red flags to avoid or how to go about it to avoid that? Yeah, there's red flags, but there's not guarantee that you won't get scammed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's like, preface it that. But, but that's really like what we did when we create our supply chain management firm is to help people navigate that. And some of the things that we found about suppliers that aren't really that trustworthy if they don't have enough profiles established digitally. So if they have like a mm. Alibaba store that is selling electronics, but they're also selling handbags, then that tells <laughs> me that they're not really a manufacturer. They're just a trading company or they're a middleman, or maybe they're just one person working in a basement in China who is trying to be the manufacturer. When you're on Alibaba, there's a lot of different types of people you'll run into. There are people who are literally the person who invented the original charging cables, the, yeah. the factory. 
And then there are the people who are brand new. They also have an assembly line, a manufacturing plant, but they're not a seasoned. Those two are good. But then you're going to run into a lot of trading companies, which is people who have no assembly line. They have a small office, maybe five or six people, and they're all sales. None of them actually yeah. are manufacturing anything. They're talking to the people who are manufacturing and is always going to be like the people who have no skin in the game. Their entire process is to move item from A to B and get money from B to A. Well, actually from B to themselves <laughs> and then the rest to A. And those are the people that you look out for. It's, it's those that really have nothing to lose because what do they have to lose? They don't have investment in any inventory. They're not yeah. manufacturing anything. If you cancel the order, they don't really care because they got paid already. So you got to look for people that have absolutely nothing to lose. Now, how do you look for that? <laughs> That's probably the next question, right? Number one, going back to the first point is people who are selling a variety of stuff. If you're selling like face masks and phone cases and thermal water bottles, you're not really selling a specific category and therefore you're not manufacturing a specific category. And so you're most likely a trading company. Number two is if, let's just say South of China is making electronics and you're buying headphones, but this company is in Hong Kong or it's in Beijing, which is like mm. north, it's most likely a trading company because they're not physically within that region and therefore it's a lot likely that they're just five people sitting yeah. in an office doing sales. And then if they aren't really able to provide you a certification of their factories on their Alibaba profile, as well as showing you more detailed process of how they do it, legitimate manufacturers will tell you step by step of how they make your stuff and how they ship your stuff. So trading companies, some of them have caught on and they have filled it in. But another way to narrow it down is just check like how much information do they give you. If they just okay. tell you about the product, it's not enough. If they tell you about how they manufacture the product, how they're going to ship it, how they're going to package your product, that's really important. Like the boxing of the product, okay. that's usually a legitimate supplier. And you just straightforwardly ask way, for probably, that, right? Yeah, just ask for it. I mean, like that's your due diligence during your vetting yeah. process, just making sure that all that. But I mean, the bottom line is that there's no guarantee that you're not going to get scammed. There's not a magic contract that you make people sign. Contracts are not enforceable <laughs> when they're in another country. It's so hard. So it's all about doing your due diligence, making trustworthy. But that really just goes back to basic business communication skills. Like, can you trust this person based on your interactions with them um, based on the information that they provide to you. You just might still get scammed following all those instructions, but yeah. at least you're able to minimize the risk, right? And I know like one of the solutions is just hiring like local sourcing agent. Usually that helps quite a bit. Is it something that you would recommend or actually our way around, you know, just going directly to supplier would be a better option? There's a few things I look at when I balance those options. Number one is pricing. Very obvious is pricing. Number two is... Yeah is the functionality. Like some local suppliers just do not have the same assembly line and the manufacturing capabilities. So let's go back to number point. Point one is pricing. The reason why you're getting a lot lower pricing in manufacturers overseas, obviously lower wages. A typical monthly wage in China is about $3,000 Chinese currency, which translates to about 700 USD per month. That's how much most people here get paid in a week. So right off the bat, you're paying a fourth of the salary that you have to pay locally if we're talking about United States. Number two is raw material. Instead of them, the, the U.S. companies sourcing raw materials from other countries like Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, China, Japan, South Korea, whatever, people in China or the manufacturing plants there can source it directly from their neighboring countries. So right off the bat, the raw material will be a lot cheaper. But 
there are some things that you can make in your local countries that are definitely a lot cheaper already just because of the economies of scale. Maybe they are a huge manufacturing of that product already. So the other thing is weight, product weight. I was previously making a candle company and candles mm. are pretty heavy because they're in a glass yeah, jar. Yeah. You can actually get them a lot cheaper if you make them in the United States because of the freight costs. Like the product cost for the candle was, let's just say, $8.00. But the shipping cost was like four, whereas the candle cost in the United States was like four dollars, which is half. And then the shipping price will be like a couple dollars on top of that. So right off the bat, the product cost and the shipping cost combined in the United States was cheaper than if I were to go to China. And therefore, with that in mind, I went to the supplier in America. Yeah. The other things will be the product bandwidth, which is the second point in that sense. A lot of machines that China has, America doesn't have just because it wasn't necessary to do it. If everyone's going to try to buy t-shirts, at some point, people didn't really feel like a need to like have really fancy machines here mm. until recently. Like Obviously, they have the screen prints, but they didn't yeah. really have like the fancy effect machines. So people here sometimes just can't do what you're looking to do. And then I would say number four is reliability. I will go to the local manufacturer if they're able to produce FDA certifications, if they're making skincare or they're making like mm-hmm. things that touches your skin. I personally had a skincare brand or bath bomb brand where it's like a little ball that you drop in your bath yeah. and it fizzles and it cleanses you. You wouldn't go to a country or a manufacturer that you don't trust when you're making a product that literally is in direct contact with your customer's body. Exactly. So with that in mind, I went to a trusted source in Florida talk to them, making sure that they have all the right paperwork, they have passed all the certifications. And then I sourced it from there. Yes, it was more expensive. And that kind of defeats a point one. But I'm willing to pay more to have more reliability. So you can kind of see how there's like a lot of levels that you balance (laughs) to pick local or overseas. (laughs) Plus shipping speed, you know, like one of our like fastest growing businesses, uh, I would say our majority of them are manufacturing in U.S., Mm-hmm. So if we would be comparing, let's say, China versus U.S., especially if it's heavier, you know, thing and you can't ship it through airplane, mm-hmm. you actually have to do shipping by ship, right? Yeah. It takes way too long. You know, it's like, what, a month and a half, two months, you know, to get it shipped to U.S.? 30 days. Yeah. 30 days. Yeah. 30 days. How do you go about ensuring good quality and pricing then? Because my personal experience of Chinese, but you can always give you kind of like initial price, but you can always expect to lower it like 30, 40%. So what's a good balance between quality and price? Not going too cheap on price, so we would have, hey, how do we save on quality or something? So my process for selecting vendors is I will first find, let's just say 10 vendors, and then I will send them a spec sheet. And the spec sheet will outline literally every single thing within the product. So if I were to make a greeting card, like a box of greeting cards, Christmas cards, it's got to be dirty envelopes with adhesive. This will be this color. The cards will be this type of cards, four by six dimensions, double-sided. It will have gloss uh, finishing, and then it will have blank spacing on two panels, and the outside two panels will have designs on it. And then for the packaging, it will be a two-part box where it's like top and bottom, and then we're going to need shrink wrap. So like outlining every single part. Yeah of your product and sending it to all your vendors to get the first quote, the RFQ, request for quotation. 
once they give you the quote, you narrow it down to like five or three because some of them are just extremely outrageous. Some of them have a higher MOQ than we need. Um, some of them have the lead time that's unrealistic for us. For example, 40 days to produce versus 20 days to produce. I'll rather just go with the 20 day one if it's not that big of a difference. And based on that, I'll get samples from the remaining three to five. And after I get the three to five, I can essentially lock down the quality at that point. And that's really like how you ensure that the price point that they quote you is at the quality that you want. And if it's not, mm. then you're like, hey, I got this sample from another factory. They are 20 cents cheaper. If you can match them, I can go with you. If not, I'm going to go with them. So really like now the boss in your court, you have five samples at different price points. You can be like, hey, if you can't lower it for me, I'm just going to go with the other guy that can do it better. Uh, and they all <laughs> always like try yeah. to tackle their here and there, but you, you're going to get a 30-40% reduction right off the bat, at least for your first order. It took us a while, like maybe a year of ordering before we were even able to get some sort of a discount. Mm. So there's a few ways to get the discounts off with your suppliers. Number one is you can negotiate different terms. Like a standard term is a 30% down, 70% upon delivery. If you can promise 50% down, 50% upon delivery, they might give you some type of discount mm. for the better payment terms. Number two is once you make the first order, let's just say you order a thousand units on your first order. Once you go back for your second order, you can be like, hey, I'm actually projecting to do the X amount of sales in my store this year. I think I'll be ordering another 40,000 units with you. Now, before I order 40,000 units, can we get a better pricing for this order? Leveraging the idea that I might be selling 40,000 units. So it's kind of like extending yeah. credit with your bank say, hey, I'm looking to do this much. Can you just kind of give me <laughs> yeah. a break here? And sometimes it'll work too. Like that works many times with my suppliers. So they actually end up giving me the price if I was ordering 10,000 units, but I was only ordering mm. 2,000. Because they're like, yeah, you know what? We expect you to reach that number very soon. So might as well just get it done now. You have better margins. You can actually reach that goal if your margins are better. So let's make it work. So you can negotiate the payment terms, you can negotiate the price on its own. You can also negotiate the production time too. So if you don't want to knock things off your actual unit price, you can sometimes talk about, hey, I'm not going to ask you for a discount, but can you just move it faster for yeah. production time? And sometimes if they're able to, they may bullish, but oftentimes there is a queue. There's like maybe yeah. 15 people ahead of you, so they kind of have to work through the queue. So. But eventually, after you work with them long enough, you can kind of skip the queue. That's the little secret. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of like preferential treatment, essentially, right? Especially if, if you're, you're doing volume. Enough. If yeah. you're big enough. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about quality control, right? Do you have some sort of agent out there that goes and checks the quality before the product is shipped? Yeah. So for most merchants, I recommend you just hiring a third-party inspection firm in China. You can either do that through Alibaba inspections.alibaba.com. If you're purchasing a product and paying through Alibaba, you can use that option. Number two, you can mm -hmm. just Google product inspection firms in China. They all speak English and they essentially will ask you to send them a sample unit product to set us a standard of quality. So you're like, hey, this is the wallet that is 10 out of 10. That's what I want. Yeah. I want you to inspect the inventory and making sure that the rest of the inventory are 10 out of 10, just like this one. And then afterwards, they'll go to the factory, they'll inspect most of the inventory, and then they'll write you a report saying, here's a grade. The color is off on this panel, but the functionality works perfectly fine. 
I feel like the strap isn't as long as you think it would be. Yada, yada, yada. They'll give you like a full, mm. it's like a school report. And then it's only like maybe $300, $400. It's not too expensive. Mm. But it's the price you pay unless you want to have like a tens of thousand dollars of losses by getting the wrong product. So <laughs> I always recommend that. That's something that we offer at our firm as well. So we do supply chain management and product development for a lot of people. And it kind of navigates and how do I go find suppliers? How do I communicate with suppliers? How do I inspect my goods if I'm not in China? So our team essentially acts as your sourcing agent and handles the entire process for you. And one of the things that we really make sure that we do right is by hiring a ton of people in China who do really what we just mentioned is to yeah. find suppliers, negotiate with them and making sure that the product that you order is exactly what you want. Because you are better off hiring a firm and paying that fee than to spend, let's just say, $25,000 on a PO and getting an entire shipment of things that you either didn't order or was <laughs> like a little bit off yeah. when you order. <laughs> we have seen stories. Everybody has horror stories about China. It's sadly the reality. Where can people find your agency? Sauce House, uh, S-A-U-C-E-H-A-U-S dot C-O, Sauce House. It's like hot sauce. And I mean, it because <laughs> source sounds like sauce. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's kind of a fun name because most of the sourcing agencies are like really old and boring. <laughs> it's like exactly it's like professional sourcing ink, or like <laughs> it's very data. You go on their website, it looks like it was made in two thousand five, and it just seems like they don't really have a full grasp on what's going on. And most of them don't service small time merchants. Most of them work with like the WalMarts, the Targets of the world. So we really wanted to make this firm. Because we feel like there's a lot of people who are struggling with navigating China. There's a ton of marketing yeah. firms out there. We're not called marketing, so we're not going to start a marketing firm. But what are we really good at? We're good at building products. And we feel like it was a big need. I think if you're going to be investing all that money into hiring ad agencies like your agencies or working with like different people or even starting a store, you should really making sure that the product that you sell is the product that you want to sell. <laughs> and that was the main inspiration. Exactly, because you know, like good marketing can make a first sale, but it will never make a second if like the product is bad quality. Because like the good quality is what drives you know like any decent, fast-growing business out there. And maybe like last question for me, right? You know, so what if a product actually doesn't match the quality expectations that we had? And let's say you order inspection, right, and it just comes back, you know, hey, this is not the product that we wanted, right? How do you go about solving that issue? The manufacturer will change it based on what the issue rather than a functionality issue. But if it's a functionality issue, they will have to remake the entire inner component. So look at it like a car. You know, if you get a car mm -hmm. and the car door has a mismatched color, they would just swap yeah. out the door. If the wheels are not right, they swap out the wheels. If the car only drives backwards, then obviously they need to add something that makes the car drive forward too. Yeah. So for manufacturing, typically it's not about remaking the entire thing. It's really about a actual spec sheet is. And that's the importance of making a spec sheet. When you make a spec sheet outlining everything that you want the product to be, that's the standard and reference that you have. And if they do not match the reference that you gave them, you cannot accept delivery and you cannot remit the remaining of the balance. And that's why we have a down payment and a payment upon delivery. Yeah. So if within their best interest, you get the remaining balance, right? That's really all it is. It's a money game. But if they can't give you the product that you want and you don't pay them, they have nothing else to go to. So you have the leverage here. You have like the 70% of the balance in your hand 
and be like, yo, yeah. I need to get my product the way that I ask you to yeah. or else I'm not releasing it. So it's as simple as communicating that. And, and typically it's not a mean thing to do. It's pretty standard in business. You order A, they didn't give you A, you're not paying for what they gave you. Yeah. That's as Until simple they as give is. what you need, you know, what you arranged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. And are there like any kind of like crazy cases you had where it was like not made correctly and it didn't went well? Oh yeah, there's um it's typically not like anything made correctly. It's just a lot of product defects, things you learn here and there that you never expect you have to do. So I'll give you two like two famous cases internally <laughs> at least. Recently we had a client who sold like greeting cards, which is why I gave the greeting card example. So the greeting cards have envelopes, right? Like there's cards yeah. and there's envelopes. We place the order. We were like, hey, we want envelope. And that's kind of the end of it. We, we like, we want envelope. Yeah. We just assume the envelope will have glue. When you buy an envelope at the store, <laughs> it has glue. Yeah. You just flick the envelope and you tape it shut. The entire shipment arrived. And it was supposed to go to like big name retailer. <laughs> like a really big retailer. Yeah. And it came without glue. It's an envelope. It's a flap. It closed and it just reopens. So customer will have to go out of their way to get a sticker. They have to like use the glue to do it. Just going out of their way to have to do it. And so the entire shipment cannot be used. The entire thing. It's arrived at the customer store, cannot be used. And it comes back to us saying like, we should have specified at least what the manufacturer said. They, they said you should have specified that you want glue on it. And in my head, I'm like, have you ever had an envelope without glue? It's like, <laughs> you always buy envelope that comes with glue. You lick it yeah. and it glues. It's, and then I'm like, do you buy shoes without shoelace? Like, do you go to the store, you buy a pair of shoes and say, I want shoelace on it. You don't do it. It's, it's one of those things where it's very natural, you know. <laughs> yeah. It took me because it was like one of the few mistakes I've made in my entire like few years of career. <laughs> so it's like, whoa. That kind of like set me back a little. It's like, am I the dumb one? Like, am, is it like my fault? <laughs> um, and then after like looking into it, it's not like it's one person's fault. It's like a break in multiple parts of the system. Like, yes, we should have specified, but we didn't know we had to specify. Like typically when yeah. you order stuff, you're like, you want to specify the color. Like, yeah, I want the blue one. Or I want the white one. I want the, the leather and whatever. But you don't expect that you have to specify that you want blue for envelopes. And so that was one of the big oopsie that we had. And then another thing, is sometimes customer rush us to make things. Like obviously you're mm. you're rushing to launch a product yeah. and you're rushing to sell on Black Friday and you rush us. But the caveat of rushing us is that we can work only as fast as we can, but there's things that chemically cannot work as fast as you can. And this is another glue thing. And at this point I really hate glue. We had a we had a customer <laughs> who ordered a product and it's a packaging. So the packaging is let's just say like a box like this. But it was like a thicker box. It's one of those boxes where it's like, this is very thin. Like this is paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was more of a cardboard. So it was a yeah. cardboard enforced with paper printed over it for the design. And the way that they do it is that they will make the cardboard box and then they'll print the design onto paper and then glue the paper onto the cardboard. Mm. That's how they make it. That's, yeah. If you go into any course right now, you try to peel the paper packaging, you can see that. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I know it. When the customer rushed us, they're like, hey, we want this order like right now, yada, yada, yada. We're like, okay, we'll rush it for you. But are you sure? Like typically it's like 25 days, but you want us to get it done for you for 20 days. Like, yeah, we could do it. And it seems like you really need us to do it. So we'll do it. So we do it. It looks fine. Like on the QA picture, when we inspect it, it looks fine. During the transit to the customer, 
because we didn't give it enough time to sit and, and cure the, the glue for the drying process, the paper yeah. and the cardboard actually like detach. So it became, there's a lot of bubbles. So when mm. you look at it, bubbles, there's like some part that you can literally put your finger in. You ever seen like blisters on your, yeah, yeah, on yeah. your finger? It's, it's like a blister. And so it, <laughs> the entire shipment arrived to the customer store with blisters in their cardboard thing because we didn't give it enough time to sit and dry the glue. And this comes back to is like, is it whose fault is it now again? Like, is it, is it our fault or is it customer's fault? And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. We'll fix it. So yeah. we fix it. But that's the thing that we do. And sometimes we lose money and we lost, we lost a ton of money on that order is that we stand by by our quality and our services. And if things don't go right, we always will fix it for you. And that's really like, you can't find that as a Chinese supplier. Like if the Chinese supplier makes a mistake and they ship it to your door, they're not going to fix it. Cause they're like, it's out of China. It's not in our country. Yeah. <laughs> like we're not not your problem. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think that's really what sets us apart from other sourcing firms that we guarantee that you'll get what you want. If not, we'll fix it for you and we will pay for it. Most, most of the time upon if it's within reason, but even if it means losing money, we want to make sure that every product that we get to our customers is what they wanted because that's really why we made this firm. There's, it's not yeah. about like making money. It's about the products that people love and in the process, we really enjoy it. So those are the two horror stories I can tell you off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very similar to you know, why we are kind of running an agency because we help to sell these products and bring happiness to people in a way for like other people's hands. And yeah, I'm just kind of also like, all up for a high quality product out there. So yeah. Anyways, do you guys only work with China or some other regions too? Let's say sourcing in US, Europe. We do some in the US, depending on what product it is. We do some in Vietnam, Malaysia, South Korea. So like every country has their specialties and also like what kind of product you want to do. Like if we were to do cosmetics, you can go to Italy for the high-end yeah. cosmetics that Armani uses. Or if you want something better for like more moisturizing for your skin, you go to South Korea, their formula. So what the product is, it's not like we're set in China. It's just that's where 90% of our products are being yeah. made. So it's usually used as a best case example. Makes sense. So what, Jason? Super thank you full for your time. And maybe you can mention the website for people who can find your business again. Yeah, for sure. Welcome to visit AUE. H-A-U-S dot C-O. That's where we can help you make your products come true. Enjoying this podcast? Consider subscribing and sharing it with your friends. This helps us to grow and create more amazing content like this for you.